the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance show. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Fleet Moore. Fleet is an author, meditation teacher, management consultant, trainer, and executive coach who facilitates deep transformation for individuals and organizations through his philosophy and program of radical responsibility. He is a tireless and dedicated peacemaker and servant leader working for positive social transformation and a more just and sustainable global society. In this interview together, we discuss embodied neuroscience-informed trauma-sensitive approaches to mindfulness meditation and growth mindset for optimal human performance and personal evolution. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So, Fleet, here is my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it, for me, it means having really the ability to kind of stand on our own two feet in life and having, in life and having the resilience to do so. Um, there's a lot underlying that, the, just really having the whole context of, of self-agency and autonomy and uh, self-leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think that's a real decision we make at some point to uh, exercise self-agency and take responsibility ownership over our own lives, the direction of our lives. And, and then we learn to be more self-reliant and, and develop uh, the overall psychological strength, psychological flexibility, uh, the health and well-being, the resilience, uh, and the skills in order to be self-reliant. No, that's very good. And I just, as you were saying that, I was thinking also you mentioned self-leadership, which are finds very interesting and we can get into it. I'm not sure how much you know of my work, but I did my doctorate studies in mindful leadership, but I did it from an embodied perspective. So that's why I'm really keen and interested to talk to you. And I know like one of your main focus areas is in this idea surrounding having a trauma sensitive approach, but approaching it both from a neuroscience informed perspective, right? and also an embodied perspective. I was thinking maybe a good starting point would be, how do you see trauma? Like if somebody said to you, Fleet, how would you define trauma? What would you tell them? Generally, trauma is suffering and trauma is related to injuries. It can be physical injuries, emotional injuries. And in terms of emotional trauma, which many people are referring to when we hear the word trauma, it usually occurs when something overwhelms our ability to cope with a a situation emotionally. Um, And it embeds in our nervous system, particularly when we cannot escape the situation or fight back or defend ourselves. So that's why childhood traumas are particularly um, 
devastating, really, um, and can be very lasting in their impact, uh, both for the reason that uh, children are unable to run away or defend themselves or fight back usually, and also uh, when we're very young, our nervous system and and our uh, neural networks in our brain are very fluid, very neuroplastic at that time, and so things deeply embed, deeply imprint, and can have lasting impacts. Uh, But as adults, uh, we can still, of course, still be very affected by traumas and I do a lot of work with first responders who experience primary trauma, incident trauma, and then also the kind of growing, creeping uh, effect of, of secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. So it embeds in our nervous system, it, and uh, it actually destabilizes the healthy functioning of, of uh, neural networks in our brain. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, it's literally, it's literally in, in that sense, emotional trauma ends up being physical because it actually impacts our brain and sets us up to, um, uh, over time, what it really does. Um, I, I find very helpful, um, uh, Dr. Dan Siegel's construct, the uh, window of tolerance, which, uh, some of us like to call the zone of resilience, a similar idea. And one of the impacts of trauma is that that zone starts to shrink. So there's uh, we have a smaller bandwidth of life challenges that we can handle from our best self in a in a relational responsive mode. And and there are more things that trigger us back into that uh, survival mode, that fear based survival mode or fight or flight. And uh, that can get so extreme, it can lead to agoraphobia where people can't even leave their homes because Mm -hmm. it's just too triggering to leave their homes. So so this is a, a direct neurobiological impact, literally an impact on on the wiring of our nervous system and the neural networks of the brain as a ro- result of emotional trauma. Yeah, I find that fascinating. One, just because I think it's very important work, but second to that is I can speak for myself from childhood trauma. So I grew up in a very traumatic environment and I've been, you could, you could literally say, I've been working my entire life and now I'm getting close to 50 still trying to find a way to overcome the trauma that I had to go through as a, as a child. So I'm very well aware of how that stays with you. And I think a lot of times people tend to have this way of looking at trauma as though it's just a neurological, something that's happening in your brain experience, right? But what you are saying, and what I think is very important is that you're saying, yes, that's part of it, but it's also an embodied experience, right? It's an internal below the head experience, right? And that's really where you are, your work's coming in in the respect to the embodied aspect. And I'd like to just explore that a little bit more because, you know, even though I understand everything you said, right? Somebody listening to this might not fully grasp that. Like how how does that actually apply? When you talk about the nervous system, what do you actually mean by the nervous system? Um, And the way that I describe it to people, and it's exactly as you said, right? is that for the longest time, the way that I explained it was that it felt like my body was running hot all the time. And that any slight thing out of variance that challenged me immediately became a threat. And rather than responding to it in a calm, focused, centered way, my response was always, at least my response was to fight, right? We oftentimes people's response was to flee. And I'd say that, you know, the fleeing part was probably there for me in the beginning until I decided, I'm not going to run anymore and I'm going to fight this. But in both ways, it wasn't the best way to, to deal with it. So maybe talk a little bit more about 
that embodied aspect of, of trauma, because I think that's very important for people to understand. All right, well, I'll do my best with that. And just as a caveat, although I've been studying neuroscience and neuroscientific literature for a long time, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm a psychologist. So, uh, but nonetheless, really the direct impact, a lot of it does have to do with uh, the neurobiological functioning and neural networks uh, of the brain, which I'll discuss in just a moment. But then that that runs throughout our whole body because our whole nervous system is completely interconnected. So we have the autonomic nervous system. It really operates all the functions of the body and and that nervous system runs from our brain down to the spinal cord and and throughout the entire body. So uh, what trauma sets us up for is being more easily triggered into fear-based responses, into fight or flight. So one of the things that happens is the amygdala, which are we have two of them, like with most things in the brain, because we have two hemispheres of the brain, we have two of most things, right and left. So we have right and left amygdala, and they're in the midbrain or part of the limbic system. And they become larger, they grow and become oversensitized. And so we're more easily uh, triggered into that uh, fight or flight response uh, based on just perceived risk, not even actual risk, but just perceived risk. Uh, all kinds of things will trigger uh, past memories. Uh, it also has to do with um, uh, conditioning uh, in, in long-term memory within, our, within the limbic system. So... Uh, when we have negative experiences, we know this from current neuroscience. When we have any kind of negative experiences, experiences of, of threat, harm, and so forth, um, the memory faculty in the limbic part of the brain, the limbic system, uh, really lights up and goes into you know full functioning. And we remember everything with uh, tremendous clarity, vividness, and detail. And that's, we remember the sounds, the smells, uh, the taste, the visual input, the sounds, everything. We remember all the sensory input and we remember it with a lot of clarity, detail, and vividness. And importantly, it goes right into long-term memory. Now, conversely, when we're having uh, neutral or positive experiences, the memory faculty is nearly, not nearly as acute and these experiences don't even go into long-term memory unless we hold them in short-term memory, the science says, for 12 to 20 seconds, which is why uh, my colleague, Dr. Rick Hansen, says our brain is set up to act like Velcro for negativity and like Teflon for positive experiences. And all that negative uh, memory uh, stored in the long-term memory um, creates something called implicit memory. And this is, we hear the term implicit bias. So implicit memory causes us that we filter current experiences through that implicit memory. So since there's a lot of negativity in the long-term memory, we tend to spin things to the negative. Well, that's true for all of us, right? That's just the, the human condition. It's true for all of us. It's why, you know, when you look at the news, what do you see? You see nothing but negativity because if they put on positive news, we change the channel, right? We're all addicted to negativity. So because that's what's in our long-term memory. So that's true for all of us. And then you add trauma to that. It just becomes more and more severe. And we get caught in a vicious cycle where we're continually spinning things because of implicit memory to the negative and setting ourselves up to be triggered to perceive threat where there is none. And, um, and you know, then the whole neurobiological uh, response to threat goes in and which impacts, uh, you know, there's a whole, you can get into the whole biochemical uh, way in which that happens. But basically, we start to go into fight or flight to one degree or another, and uh, our nervous system is 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 shifting to prepare to either stand and fight or run like heck, and to uh, and everything else goes offline. Our immune system goes offline. Our cognitive function starts to go offline, 
um, our digestive processes go offline. And really our whole nervous system, our whole body is setting itself up to just stand and fight or, or, or run and get away. Unless it goes into really extreme uh, sense of threat, like really life peril. And then sometimes we can go into a freeze response, mm. uh, which isn't the disassociation or shutting down. That's, some people get confused with that. That's when we go into hypoarousal. We just start disassociating and shutting down. And that can go into complete shutdown, a feigned death response. But the freeze response is actually a highly activated response where we go into a complete muscle paralysis, a complete freeze. And that's in the extreme when we really, uh, when life feels threatened. But we can also in the extreme then go down into that hypoarousal, even go into the feign. Most species have that ability to go into that feign death response mm. because if, if an animal appears dead, some predators will then leave it alone because they won't, they won't attack or, or devour something that's already dead. So, you know, this is our whole neurobiology. And this, in fact, this affects the whole body, right? Now, what I don't think we have real clear science around is it does appear that certain traumas can be located in the body. I think we have a lot of clinical <clears throat> evidence of this uh, from people doing uh, various kinds of body work mm -hmm. and uh, deep connective tissue work, uh, somatic experiencing work, but some kind where there's physical manipulation of the body and, uh, and they'll be working on one part of the body and suddenly they trigger a whole set of memories. Uh, so it does appear that that traumas can kind of be located in the body, but really the brain and the, and the nervous system is one holistic, completely interdependent enterprise that's all operating in concert. And what's happening uh, when we're getting triggered uh, by the accumulation of trauma or, or past specific incident traumas is we're basically we're, we're getting triggered into that uh, fight or flight response. We're getting triggered out of our zone of resilience or out of that window of tolerance you know, we're going into full protection mode. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, that involves the, the brain and the whole body, the whole nervous system. And it's happening, unfortunately, based on perceived threat instead of actual threat. Yeah, I think that's an excellent explanation. There's two things there. So that's interesting. So I have pretty much not any positive memories from when I was at school. School was an absolute nightmare for me. So I'm in Denmark right now, and I'm, I'm actually teaching a few uh, seminars and workshops. And I was walking down the street today and I walked past a school and the, just the, 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 the second I walked past that school, I felt my entire physiology change. So even today, you know, like I've left school a very long time ago, but even if I walk past a school, I still feel it, right? I still feel that implicit memory that you're talking about. It just kind of switches on. And the, one of the things that I do, because I'm in kind of a different world to you, but in the same way we, we are on, on a similar path is that many of my students, if we want to call them that, are people that are first responders um, from special force military operators to law enforcement and so forth. And one of the things we always talk about is that ultimately the, the brain is just really a do not get killed device. And so it kind mm -hmm. of builds into what you said is that we're always going to slant towards the negative versus the positive, because if you take an evolutionary perspective, it makes perfect sense, right? To always be on the kind of the the side of caution, just in case, right? Just in case is a problem, just in case, you know, back in the day, there's a saber-toothed tiger around the corner. So, you know, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I guess my next kind of question and, and follow-up to that is, and what anybody would be thinking if they're listening to this is, is there anything we can do about this? I mean, is there something that we can do? Where's a starting point? If I'm struggling with this kind of fight and flight response, 
exactly as you described, or as I said, you know, running hot all the time, you feel that background hum of anxiety. What can we do to overcome that? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I want to give just flesh out a little more background too. a part of what you're describing also has to do with a phenomenon known as neuroception. Mm. So our nervous system is scanning the world around us all the time. It's scanning through the five senses and may literally be scanning energetically, you know, just directly through the sure. skin. I don't know, but for sure about that. But there's some different ideas about that. But certainly through the five senses, we're scanning the world around us. And, you know, we are empathic beings. We all know we pick up things energetically as well as through the five senses. So we're scanning the world around us all the time. And what are we scanning for? We're scanning for threat, right? For mm. job one, for any species, as you said, is survival, right? And so we're neurobiologically wired for survival. And so we're scanning for threat. And so if someone uh, enters a room or an area where we are, what's the default mode, friend or foe? Well, of course, it's foe until proven otherwise. Now, if, if they start approaching, we recognize them, they're a friend, you know, then, you know, we get that oxytocin release. We're willing to approach someone, approaching behaviors, maybe even give somebody a hug, shake their hand, whatever. But until we get, you know, some messages of safety, you know, we're, we're in defense mode, right? That's just the way we're wired. I really recommend Stephen Porges work around mm. uh, polyvagal theory. I think it's also very helpful understanding the function of the vagus nerve and both the dorsal and ventral uh, branches of the vagus nerve, one, one being more primitive and connected to that freeze shutdown response, the other, uh, you know, going all the way down into our gut and connecting with that kind of other big neural network we have in the biome in the gut. And, and we understand a lot more about how all that works now. And we talk about having good vagal tone, right? Which means that you're able to not go into fight or flight so easily, right? And that we're able to have our social engagement systems online. And that's something we can learn to do uh, with each other. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment in terms of sure. co-regulation uh, of how we, we create the sense of safe. So others start through neuroception or perceiving safety, we're perceiving safety, and then two people can connect and feel safe with each other. That's how you create relationship, right? And so we can become much more acutely aware of that and learn to navigate that skillfully in how we interact with others. But to begin with, obviously, we need to do our own work. I think we need to, we need to develop the capacity for self-regulation. So I, I mentioned self-leadership before, and what that really comes down to is self-regulation, learning to regulate our own nervous system. If we don't take ownership, you know, our nervous system has these two branches, right? It has the upregulating sympathetic branch, which to begin with is upregulating just for alertness, and then goes beyond that into fight or flight, the stress response, and all the way into extreme fight or flight. And then we have the parasympathetic branch, which is more the relaxation, rest, and recovery response. And they're both happening all the time. And there's an appropriate balance of the two for whatever we're doing, whether it's responding to a crisis or getting ready to, you know, try to go to sleep at night and have a good night's sleep, right? So for any life activity, there's an appropriate balance of the uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic branches of the autonomic nervous system. And they're connected to the breath. When we breathe in, there's a slight activation of the sympathetic, the upregulating uh, branch of the autonomic nervous system. When we breathe out, slight activation of the parasympathetic branch. And therefore, we can actually learn to regulate our own autonomic nervous system by regulating the breath. This is really the key. This is the golden doorway to self-regulation, learning to regulate the breath. So that's, in, that's interesting that you say that. I'm sorry just to jump in there, but the reason I, I think that's powerful is I was saying that I'm in Denmark right now and I've been teaching a few workshops. And so one of the things that had come up was that I had, I had some people moving on the floor and they were doing certain scenarios 
because what I also teach is defensive tactics. And I noticed that some of the participants were applying what we could kind of categorize as kind of a short breath, you know, going short breaths when they were doing things, mm-hmm. um, which led us into a discussion, which you've just mentioned, where we talked about the autonomic nervous system. And I was saying to them that, you know, you need to think about how your body is going to be on the front line, right? When you actually have to apply these specific skills and you're going to be dealing with all the physiological changes. And we're not even talking about what's happening, you know, in, in, in your mental state. And if you're going to come out there with those short breaths, what's going to happen is if you're already running hot, right? If you already have a lot of anxiety, all you're going to end up doing is ramping it up and you may ramp it up to a place exactly as you described earlier, where you don't actually want to go because you may get to the point where at worst case scenario, you end up freezing or getting to that freeze point where you start forgetting what you're supposed to be doing. And in actual fact, what you want to do is, as you noted, is you want to start shifting your focus towards that outbreath. Because that balance that you describe, I think um, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a, a neuroscientist, she describes that very well. She talks about how the body is always seeking to maintain its body budget, right? So it's like, you know, like you do a budget when, you, when you're looking at the money that you have, you don't want to overdraw because then you're going to go into debt. And so the body is always looking to manage that body budget. And if you don't do it, then there are going to be consequences, right? Yeah, and so the body is always, yeah. always seeking homeostasis. Yeah. However, conditioning can set us up to have the body seeking a homeostasis that's not healthy for us, mm-hmm. right? It, in other words, you can think of homeostasis as a stable condition, which is kind of the status quo. But if our status quo is like running hot, like you're saying, then your body is going to continually keep bringing you back to that state of running hot because your body is kind of whatever neurochemical mix we have in our brain. Most of the time we actually adapt to it and become addicted to it. Mm. So if we suddenly, you know, if, if you're running hot all the time, your whole brain is set up and used to that, that is your status quo situation. And you suddenly started experiencing a lot of just chilled out relaxation. You would unconsciously find a way to get back into that running hot state because that's what your brain is used to. That's what it needs. Right. So, but the breath is really the key to self-regulation. I'm, I'm going to share a little practice with you and your audience right now. That's it's just been a lifesaver for so many. And obviously, breath regulation is critical for first responders, but I, I believe it's critical for all of us because we because if we don't take ownership for regulating our own autonomic nervous system, which means we can also regulate our emotions and our behaviors and be more in the driver's seat of our own life. So if I don't take ownership for regulating my own autonomic nervous system, guess who is regulating it? everybody but me, right? We all live in the interface between our childhood conditioning, and that's a mixed bag for all of us. Tragically, some of us have really horrific childhood conditioning, but nobody comes through childhood unscathed. We live in the interface between that and the world around us. And, you know, if we had really benevolent childhood conditioning and really benevolent surroundings, we might be able to live in that interface with a lack of mindfulness somewhat unconsciously, and it might be relatively okay. But most of us don't have benevolent childhood conditioning. And for most of us, the world is not very benevolent, especially these days. And so that unconscious ride in that interface is not a pretty sight. So we really need to take ownership for that. So I'm going to offer you a very simple practice right now called straw breathing. It's called straw breathing because you can literally do it with a straw, but you don't need a straw to do it. So we'll just do this for a minute here. So we're going to breathe in through the nose with the mouth closed. And then we'll breathe out through pursed lips as if through a straw or as if through as if whistling right in through the nose out to purse lips 
And you can let the breath aspirate like you're whistling, or you don't have to do that. So set up that breathing pattern in through the nose, out through pursed lips. So just keep breathing in that way. And then we're going to start counting the breath in order to extend the out breath twice as long as the in breath. So I'm going to start counting. You can just follow along. So let's start with an out breath. And then we'll begin on an in breath. So in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in through the nose, two, three, four, out through pursed lips, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So let's just continue that for another 30 seconds or so. So Rodney, what did you notice there about your own physiological state? So everything starts slowing down, right? It starts feeling more calm, get more centered. I always notice when you do exercises like that as well is that your the colors around you get more colorful. Mm -hmm. Everything looks brighter. So yeah, it's it's very, very effective. And and that focus on that out breath is very important as well, right? Yeah. Because that's so the somebody, part that's engaging that sympathetic nervous system. It's so if someone wants to use a straw, you can get a straw, pull straw, mm -hmm. half a straw, and you breathe in through the nose and you put the straw in, blow out through the straw. Now Breathing out through a straw takes more effort, right? Mm. And even pursed lips requires more effort because you're creating some resistance to the breath, right? A straw even more, and that does things like tones the uh, uh, the diaphragm and things like that. But anybody can just look up, uh, just go to your browser and look up straw breathing. You can read all about it. Mm. And there are two others that I would recommend. They're very simple and benevolent, easy for anyone to learn. One is 478 breathing that was popularized by the holistic physician Andrew Weil, but it comes from the Indian pranayama yoga tradition. And, um, and there it's just like straw breathing, but in the middle, you pause for a count of seven. So in four, pause seven, out eight, right? And that gives you a bit of an oxygen boost because you're holding the breath in mm. for that count of seven, right? And then there's what's called box breathing, which is sometimes called tactical breathing or even combat breathing because it's used a lot in the military and special forces units. And that's where you have four parts of the breath. You have the in-breath, a hold, out-breath, hold, or in-pause, out-pause. So it's like four sides of a box, and mm -hmm. you want them to be the same length. So most people use a count of four to begin with. So it's in, two, three, four, pause two, three, four, out, two, three, four, pause, two, three, four. Now over time, you can make it a five count or a six count, or you can turn it a second by a thousand, one thousand, then it's more like four seconds. So it, the, the, the important thing is that each part is the same length, right? Makes mm -hmm. it like, that's why it's called box breathing. And, you know, Navy SEALs train in this, um, and if it works for them, it ought to work for the rest of us, right? But Navy SEAL, uh, you know, platoon leaders, officers, somebody leading a tactical unit and a firefight, right? Uh, lots of stories uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan and lots of places where, you know, they have to make split second decisions. 
that could cause their whole team to survive or be wiped out. And so, you know, you can imagine where your brain and nervous system are that most of us would just go into a complete state of panic, right? But of course, they're well-trained and they train themselves to be able, because when we're we're in fight or flight, where the reptilian brain is taking over, the survival part of the brain is taking over, and we have little or no access to the executive function in the neocortex. And therefore, our IQ drops like a rock. We don't have access to the smart part of our brain. But that's why first responders train, 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 because in that situation, they want the training that's been conditioned into their nervous system, into their memory to kick in so they don't have to think. But in that, a leader in that situation has to think. So they have to be able to somehow, even in that situation, regain access to the whole brain, very quickly assess the situation, make a decision and make the call, which could be a life or death call for themselves and their team. And they use things like box breathing to keep themselves well-regulated, even in those extreme circumstances, to be able to manage their own brain in that way. Well, most of us don't have to deal with circumstances nearly that extreme, but we do deal with a lot of challenges in life. And learning these simple breath regulation tools can put us in charge of our own nervous system, our own emotions, our own behaviors, our own thought process, and the results we're creating for ourselves in life and the impact we're having on others. Mm, no, very powerful. One of the things, and I want to get your your take on this, if I understand it correctly, I think a lot of times when I try to kind of go through this with, with other people, one of the things that confuses them on some of the breathing exercises is the fact that we are asking them to actually hold their breath, right? So mm-hmm. in their mind is, well, if you're trying to help me, uh, you know, basically get to a more calm state, like why would you ask me to hold on to my breath? When, when we hold the breath and, and doing a breath hold for a four count or even a seven count is really some, something almost anyone can do. Now, there are some people for whom that will kind of trigger some panic. So they can start with holding the breath for a one count, mm, mm. a two count, a three count, and just gradually build it up. And, and I've seen people, even people really traumatized folks, people suffering with a lot of trauma, uh, where it's connected to the breath and holding the breath, just the idea of holding the breath or pausing. And sometimes we use the term pause instead of hold because the term pause is less triggering for folks. But, you know, for some people, the idea of holding or pausing the breath is, is very triggering. And uh, but if you just start off with one second and then two seconds, anybody can build up to even 10 seconds re- relatively quickly. And for some on the box breathing, it's more difficult because all of us can breathe in and hold the breath for a few seconds. That's generally not too difficult. But breathing out and then and then pausing, not breathing in, that can that can create a bit of a panic. It just takes a little bit of getting used to. But what's absolutely happening, happening there is not oxygen starvation. We have plenty of oxygen in our system. And, and you can hold your breath for a lot longer than that. Still have plenty of oxygen in your system. What's actually happening is carbon dioxide buildup. Hmm. So we have a comp- an exchange of gases going on all the time. The most basic is, you know, we're breathing in fresh oxygen and then we're releasing the carbon dioxide out of our bloodstream, right? That oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange that's happening in the alveoli and the lungs. Now, there are other, there are other gases involved in the breath as well, um, nitrous dioxide and things like that. And you, when you read about straw breathing, you can read about these things. But the most important one that, in terms of what you're talking about is when we hold our breath, that sense of like it gets hard to hold our breath mm-hmm. and we start feeling a sense of panic and we're actually the fight or flight is getting triggered. That's actually um, carbon. Di- it's not oxygen starvation at all. It's carbon dioxide intolerance. There's too much carbon dioxide and we're not used to that. It triggers the fight or flight. And that's very connected to our fight or flight. 
we're actually creating that stress and learn to deal with it, which in over time, that means we're learning to feel the onset of that fight and not give it. We're developing a higher tolerance for that, right? Mm, yeah, and so it yeah. takes more to trigger us. And over time, the, the amygdala starts to shrink and become sensitized and so forth. So there's a lot of, I would really uh, encourage people to read uh, James Nestor's book on breath that came out last year, maybe two years ago. He did an incredible global exploration all over the world, both in Western science and psychology and, and the Indian pranayama traditions and all over the world uh, around studying people doing breath work of all kinds. And it's just a tour de force of really understanding the nature of all of this. And there's a lot of amazing books out now about breath regulation, but his, in terms of understanding the whole thing of it, um, is really important. And a lot of elite athletes are very tuned to this today and how to how to work with um, being able to sustain high levels of carbon dioxide and so forth. The breath uh, work every morning as part of my morning routine. And uh, I'll regularly, uh, after I do a whole lot of other things, I'll do um, a series of uh, deep breathing and then I'll hold my breath for usually a minute and a half. Uh, I sometimes two minutes. And uh, I don't encourage anybody to do that unless you have good instruction and you practice and you work, way, work your way up to it. But, you know, I, I build up and I'm able to sustain that, that tolerance of the carbon dioxide buildup. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it makes my nervous system less triggerable in the long run. Okay, you know, that, that's good. That clears that up. Talking just on the one side, one of the things I wanted to get your take on is that, you know, we, we were saying about how that, that kind of trauma manifests itself. And I think for, for a lot of times, right, for people, it's just automatic. They're not always aware of it. I'll give an example of that. So because of the whole COVID situation last year, I found myself on the Isle of Man and I had been pretty much stuck there, right, through the whole COVID situation. It's a beautiful place in the world. It's got fantastic outdoors. The nature is amazing. There's no crime there, really. It's really, really safe. Very different experience for me coming from Johannesburg, South Africa. So it took me quite a while just to kind of get used to just being there and not being on this constant alert state because that's what I was when I was in South Africa. And then just a few weeks ago, because I hadn't been home since COVID began, I was able to get back to South Africa to go visit my sons. And I was really, really struggling because once I got back into Johannesburg, I had to really start changing the way that I had become for the last almost two years, right? Now, all of a sudden, I had to be on alert all the time, watching over my shoulders. But the point of what I'm trying to, you know, try to bring across is, is that when I was talking to my kids, things that were stressing me out weren't stressing them out. It didn't used to stress me out in, in the past, or at least I didn't think of it, Right. And it didn't seem to stress them out. And I was like, wow, like, how do you, you know, how do you guys deal with this anxiety all the time? Because you guys seem to just be, you know, just pushing through it. It's like, oh, dad, you know, we just get used to it. But I said, that's not necessarily a good thing. And it took me going to a place like the Isle of Man to realize how hot I was actually running all the time. And like when I got to the Isle of Man and I was, like I said, I was there for a little while, I was now suddenly aware, which I wasn't before, was aware of this kind of background anxiety. The only way I can describe it is like somebody switched on an engine and just forgot to switch it off and it's just running all the time. I guess my question is, is that, you know, for people that may be not necessarily aware of how stressed out they are and how much that is changing their neurobiology and actually affecting their health, how do they become aware of that? Would you say that one way to approach that is through meditation and through a mindfulness practice? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to mention a few other symptoms and then return to what do we do with how do we heal this and how do we work with it? So, you know, you mentioned that that sense of, of running hollow time. What you're really talking about there is hypervigilance. Yes. And, you know, first responders end up with hypervigilance it's, it's because of their job. And then they, they don't learn, they don't know how to turn it off. It becomes habitual. Right. Uh, but also uh, people that grow up are around a lot of trauma, the kind of background you had. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work with incarcerated juveniles and most of them have just experienced nothing but chaos their entire lives. And they've been on the street a lot. Right. And, and they're, they're in a constant state of hypervigilance. Right. I mean, I spent uh, 14 years in uh, uh, a maximum security federal prison hospital, part of the general population there on drug charges. And so, you know, I came out of there with my own form of hypervigilance. And, you know, I've been out uh, in 22 years going on. Yeah. 22 years. And uh, up until it just started to slow down in the last year. But previous to that, every night, full technicolor prison dreams or crime, getting busted dreams, cops and robbers dreams, in prison dreams, threatened dreams, supposed to be out of prison, back in prison, going back to prison. Just every night I knew it was waiting for I go to bed and I'm going to be in this technicolor dream scene because so it shows up, a trauma shows up in our dreams. It shows up as intrusive memories, what we, in, in, in our waking state, what are called flashbacks. It can show up as, you know, dysregulated, you know, our cognitive capacity. We can't concentrate. We can't focus. I mean, ADHD is really the, the, the effect of trauma, right? And so uh, it, it has all kinds of different symptomologies, right? And uh, so how do we become aware of it? Well, one way to become aware of it in a way that we can then do something about it is exactly develop some kind of mind training or meditation or mindfulness practice, as you were saying. And that can be difficult for someone who has a lot of trauma because just bringing their attention to themselves, to their body, to their breath, to their cognitive activity can be triggering. So they need good instruction. And there's a lot of work today on how to teach mindfulness in a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive manner. I really recommend David Trelevin's work. He has a book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. And all the work that I do in training mindfulness teachers through the Engage Mindfulness Institute, we train teachers in how to, how to share the practice of mindfulness, on how to deliver various mindfulness-based interventions in a trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed manner, which means giving people a lot of options and using invitational language and, and really giving people an easy, safe on-ramp into the practice, right? But, you know, with good instruction, almost anyone can begin to practice mindfulness in one way or another. And over time, uh, basic mind training, mindfulness training, which is about training your attention, right? Your focus, but it's also cultivating attitudinal qualities of self-acceptance, self-compassion, uh, inclusivity, non-striving, curiosity, openness about your own physiological state, emotional state, and cognitive state. So with good instruction, anybody can begin to make a little a little progress in that. But certainly if someone has a lot of trauma in their background, they should they should look for classes or teachers that do take a trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed approach to offering offering the practice. For me personally, once one is able to practice mindfulness a bit, then going into it in a really deeply embodied way is where the real healing can begin. Now, again, we do hold trauma in the body. So inviting someone to bring a lot of attention into the body can be, can be uh, triggering for someone. So, but this really points to really how almost all trauma therapies work. Generally, the way, you know, things like somatic experiencing and, and other forms of, you know, Peter Levine's work, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, Pat Ogden, 
uh, and many others, Lori Leach and many others, is that uh, you remember Dan Siegel's idea, uh, the window of tolerance, right? It's that bandwidth of life. Change. It's not our comfort zone. It's, it's the bandwidth of even very uncomfortable things, but where we can handle them still from our best self in a relational responsive way, rather than getting triggered into fight or flight survival mechanisms, right? So, you know, often our window of tolerance has shrunk. And actually for all of us in life, when we're little kids, one, two, three years old, our, it's just, you know, limitless. Like we'll, we'll jump into anything, right? But then with life's bumps and bruises, it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks for all of us. And we have a lot of avoidance mechanisms going on, even in the best case. Uh, we all have that, which is I know people in the kind of human potential world kind of sometimes say you should do something that terrifies you every day. Well, that's pretty extreme, but it's about reclaiming your life to expand that window of tolerance and zone of resilience. So when there's a lot of trauma, it shrinks. So what we want to do is re-expand it. So what we do, most trauma therapies and trauma-informed mindfulness has to do with just leaning into the edges where you start to experience that discomfort and then coming back to some place that's like home base. Like you need to find a way you can be with yourself, whether it's the breath or where you are in your body or maybe even focused outside of the body if the body's too triggering, but a place where I know I'm okay. Okay, and then I could lean into something uncomfortable. Like maybe just coming to the body is way too triggering for someone. So they start by developing mindfulness uh, focused on objects outside of themselves, colors in a room or just an object or the sky or something, right? Or sound. And then gradually bring your attention to the body a little bit. And just in there, if it gets to be too much, okay, let it go. Go back to the external reference point. Then come back to the body a little bit, back to the external reference point. So whether it's moving from different places in the body to external or internal focus, you lean into the discomfort, you lean out, you lean in, you lean out. And you learn to do that. And, you know, in trauma therapy, you have a therapist training you how to do this, but hopefully they train you in a very empowering way. So you learn to do it yourself. So you can self-titrate. You're in charge of how far you lean in and how long you stay there and when you lean back. So you feel that self-efficacy and confidence that you're in control. And you can begin expanding by leaning into the discomfort, learning to tolerate a bit of discomfort. You start expanding that, win expanding that window of tolerance again. Uh, Peter Levine uh, really kind of pioneered this model. He called it pendulating, right? You, you lean in, you lean out, you lean in and lean out. Well, in basic mindfulness practice, that's happening all the time. Because, you know, if we're doing basic sitting mindfulness practice, for most of us, we're not used to sitting up straight. We're not used to sitting still. We're not used to focusing. So it's uncomfortable, right? Mm. But we stay with it, and then we lose it, and then we stay with it, and we lose it, we stay with it. Our mind drifts away, we bring it back. Our mind drifts away, we bring it back. We're experiencing discomfort. It begins to be too much, so our mind cranks something, something to distract us, and then we come back. So basic mind training, you're always doing that kind of organic pendulating anyway. Now, once you can include the body in a more in a really deep way, I have a model I've developed called neurosomatic mindfulness, where we're activating what's called interoception or interoceptive awareness. So interoception is just a, a fancy word that means internal perception. It's the body's capacity to feel itself from the inside out. We're all very familiar with this because this is how we know when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we need to use the restroom. It's how we experience pain. But absent discomfort, we tend to ignore the internal landscape of the body and live up here in the heads and live these very disembodied lives, which is not healthy for us or the planet because we're disconnected from our heart, from the earth and so forth. So we need to come back into the body and we awaken this internal space of somatic awareness or body awareness, internal awareness. And the science says that the more access we have 
to this field of interoceptive awareness, the internal landscape of the body. And the body is sensory all the way down to the bones and including the bones. The entire body is all sensory, all a living organism, all containing the neuronal cells, all connected to the central nervous system. The whole body feels. And there's, I, I think it's limitless how deep we can go into this. And the deeper we go into it, the science says that we, we feel more embodied, we're more present, it anchors us in nowness, it simplifies things because we're living in the moment, it heals trauma, it deepens our resilience, it enhances our capacity for emotion regulation and thus behavior regulation and being in the driver's seat of our own life. So it has all these incredible benefits. It brings us into our emotional body because we experience emotion in the body and we're tuned into the many layers of feeling and mood tone that are going on all the time. So we're less likely to be hijacked by strong emotions because we're already in touch with ourselves emotionally. And then if we go even deeper, we start to get into the realms of subtle energy body and spirit and pranic body and so forth, which is really dropping into a level of beingness where ultimately we can discover that depth of our being where we know unmistakably that we're completely okay that we're not broken, that we don't need fixing, that all the lies we've heard our whole life about how we're not enough are complete lies. And we have that direct experience. And that anchors us in a sense of wellness and well-being and 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 self-worth and so forth. That's incredibly positive for it's really the ultimate source of healing. Mm. So for me, this this work of embodiment, which can be done in four forms of movement as well, but I think I think this combination of of mind training or mindfulness training with deep embodiment is really the the the, the most efficacious road into self-healing. Mm, that's very powerful. So Fleet, as we come to the end, what words of wisdom or advice do you want to leave the listener with? Well, I think it's, you know, but once we're adults, right, we all got what we got from our childhood and we could endlessly, you know, spend our lives blaming our parents. And we might know we need to go into a therapy and will a therapist yell at our parents for a while or something, get it off our chest and and then learn to forgive our parents or whatever. Right. But, you know, at some point we have to accept that, you know, we got our share of the human legacy for better or worse. And I think as adults, it's our job to work on it and prove it. So we pass on something better than what we got. Right. And so at some point we have to say, I'm an adult and what's happening in my life at this point is not my parents' responsibility. It's my responsibility. And the only person, you know, the only thing determining my destiny and, and my future are is the choices I'm making right now, the choices and actions I'm making now, today, tomorrow, and the next day. So that's the only place that it makes any sense to focus. Anytime I spend blaming, you know, it's not to say that other people and injustices of all kinds aren't impacting our lives. They are, uh, and for some in terrible ways. But nonetheless, you know, it comes down to the only thing we control, can really control, have influence over is ourselves. So we're responsible for navigating the world we're in. And will we like the world to be, you know, less violent, more just? Absolutely. And I think we all should be working towards that. But Right here, it, things are what they are in the moment. And, you know, if we really want to, you know, be in the driver's seat of our own life, we need to empower ourselves to take that sense of self-agency and learn how to take ownership for our own physiological, cognitive, emotional state, for our own behaviors and for the results we're creating, the consequences consequences we're creating for ourselves in life and the impact we're having on others, right? And and it really, it, it starts with this sense of, self-ownership and uh you know self-reliance and so forth that you started the conversation with to learn more about the art of self-reliance our virtual coaching service online courses 
and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.